I'm sure that uh, all of us in this room have a moment in our lives that may have happened a year ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, that we still remember as if it happened just yesterday. Does anybody have a moment like that? Maybe the day that your son or daughter was born, maybe the day you got married, maybe some other significant event in your life that you remember as if it happened yesterday, even though a great amount of time has elapsed and transpired since then. For me, it was this. It happened 25 years ago, but I still remember it as if it happened yesterday and can visualize me still being there. It was the first time I ever preached at a traditional black Baptist church, an old school black Baptist church, 25 years ago. Up until then, I preached at many white churches, preached at many contemporary black churches, but had never preached before at a traditional, old-school, black Baptist church. And one of the guys I was discipling, his uncle was a pastor there, Reverend E.A. Anderson, Mount Zion Missionary Baptist Church in Fairfield, Texas. If you drive today from here to Dallas on I-45, if you look to your left in Fairfield, Texas, you will see the campus of Mount Zion Missionary Baptist Church on the west side of I-45. And I was there for the very first time preaching in an old-school traditional black Baptist church, not knowing what to expect, not knowing what they were expecting. And also this, I found out later on, I was the first non-black to ever preach at that church. So we're back in the office with the pastor, maybe about 20, 30 minutes before the worship gathering is about to start. And we're uh, praying together with the deacons and the other ministers. And then the pastor kind of goes over the order of service. And then he gets to the part right before I preach. And he asked me this, he says, now, what will be your hymn of preparation? And I said, uh, excuse me? And I had to play it off like I knew what was going on. I'm like, hymn of preparation? And he said, yeah, what hymn are you going to sing before you preach? And I'm thinking in my head, I'm not a worship leader and I'm not a singer. When the Bible talks about making a joyful noise, that's what I pretty much do, right? And so he said, is there a hymn that you know by heart from memory that you can lead us in the first stanza to get our hearts ready? And I've heard from others in the old school, traditional white Baptist church that goes on in the white Baptist church as well. Is there a hymn that you know by heart that you can lead us in before you preach? And I can still visualize the office. I can still remember being there thinking to myself, now what am I going to sing? And so I sang the hymn that perhaps all of us in this room know or have heard before. The hymn, the classic hymn, Faith's Review and Expectation. Have y'all heard that hymn before by John Newton? Face Review and Expectation. Well, that was the original title for the hymn that we know today as Amazing Grace. Obviously, that title is not very catchy, Face Review and Expectation. And so the first two words of the song are Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound. And so they changed the name to that song. And it's a great song because it tells of the story of transformation by God's grace. It tells the story of John Newton, who was raised uh, by a very devout, faithful mom who loved the Lord Jesus Christ and would teach him the Bible. But at age seven, she passed away, tragically, of of an illness. And so at the age of 11, his father was a sea captain of a ship, a merchant, and he took his son on the open seas. And eventually, he adopted that life. And he began to, as we say, cuss like a sailor and live like a sailor. He lived a very dark and wretched life to the point where uh, he uh, was AWOL and he was actually sent 
to become a slave. He became the slave of an African duchess, was so uh, broke and destitute. Eventually, his dad had him come and rescued. He eventually became a sailor himself on a merchant ship that sold and traded goods and even slaves. And this is what happened. His crew despised him so much. He was such a wicked, vile, and evil man that one night in drunken stupor, he'd gotten so drunk he was singing and he was fighting that he fell overboard. The crew did not want to save him. So they threw a harpoon, a whaler's harpoon into the water that lodged into his leg and they pulled him up out of the water. From that point on, he forever walked as an adult with a limp because he had been, had that harpoon through his leg. It was the worst storm he'd ever been in. One of the men that on the stormy seas and it was the worst storm he'd ever been in. One of the men that was right before him actually was taken overboard. And so he began to pray because he heard another man praying, saying, God, would you have mercy on us? And all of a sudden, a flood of memories came of his mom teaching him the Bible, teaching him the scripture, teaching him how to pray. And so that night at age 22, he placed his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and became a believer. But here's what happened. For the next nine years, from 22 to age 31, he continued to be active in the slave trade, was a captain of his own ship, but then got out of that and eventually began to study Greek and Hebrew, pursuing uh, opportunity to become a minister, to become a pastor. And eventually he was a pastor. And towards the later years of his life, as he looked back on his life, he counts that those nine years that after he trusted Jesus, the nine years that he remained as a slave trader, he highly doubted his own salvation. And he became a very staunch abolitionist. He even joined forces with William Wilberforce and others to become an abolitionist. And so it's this amazing story of a man who was a drunkard, a vile drunkard, an evil man, a wicked man, who bought and sold uh, men and women, creating the image of God, and even brothers and sisters in Christ. He traded and sold them and then became a staunch abolitionist and a promoter and uh, proclaimer of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And in that, he began a Bible study, a prayer meeting and Bible study. And before every prayer and Bible study, he would have a hymn written, a brand new hymn. He and the worship leader, the worship pastor there, would write a hymn together. And over their career, they wrote 280 hymns. And the most famous one is the one we know, Amazing Grace. And so here's what I want to talk about today is here is a man who was transformed by the grace of God. Here is a man who is transformed by the Lord Jesus Christ. Here is a man who is used by the Lord Jesus Christ. And the song that he wrote continues to be used even to this day. And so my question is this, is there anyone here who wants to be transformed by the grace of God, to become the man or the woman, the believer, the husband, the father that God has called you to be? And if so, we're going to find where that's found in Acts 9. And if there's anyone here today who says, I want to be used by God. Long after I've left this earth, I still want to be used by God. We're going to find the key to that also in Acts 9 as well. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Acts chapter 9. What's the critical factor for transformation? And it can be summed up really in two words. And it's a repeated word throughout this chapter. Eight times the writer of Acts, Luke, uses this phrase and I think it's a very appropriate phrase, whether you want to be transformed or whether you want to be used by God, it's an essential, critical factor. Acts 9 is known as a conversion of Saul, from Saul to Paul, and it's repeated in Acts 22 when Paul's given his testimony. It's repeated again in Acts 26 when he's given his testimony, and it's repeated in Galatians chapter 1 when he's sharing his testimony there as well. So we see it repeated three times in the, in the book of Acts, but here is... 
the direct story. Now Saul, verse one, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. So here's the, the, the context here. He was there when Stephen was stoned. And literally here, still breathing threats and murder. It's not really breathing out. He's inhaling. It's become such a part of him that he's zealous to stomp out this faith, this way known as Christianity, to stomp out believers. That it's what he is living to do. And the reason why is this. It's not out of a heart of hatred, out of a heart of like any kind of anger. He really genuinely believes he's doing the right thing. As a follower of God, he's saying, if idolatry is sin and we have to stomp it out, then he says, these people are worshiping idols. We have to deal with it. So he really believes in his heart of hearts that he's doing God's will. Verse two, and ask for letters from him to the synagogues in Damascus so that if, uh, if if he found any belonging to the way, whether men or women, he might bring them in shackles to Jerusalem. So he asked the high priest, he says, give me the legal, give me the religious okay to go and hunt these people down because now they've scattered. Now they're in Damascus, which is 135 miles north of Jerusalem. He says, so if I find them, I can bring them back in handcuffs and chains. Verse three, now as he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So first he says that he came to find and persecute the followers of the way. The way, where do we get that from? John 14, six, Jesus says, I am the way. Notice he didn't say a way, he says, I am the way. The Greek word there is the same word that we get the word odometer from. So in your car today, if you're looking at your odometer, see how many miles that you've traveled? It really means uh, miles or traveling. That's what odometer does. It measures what you've traveled. He says, these people are the people who are traveling with Jesus. They're following on the way with Jesus, and he's come now to arrest them. In uh, Acts 22, 26, we find out that this happened at noon, the brightest point of the day. So today at around noon, go out and look at the sun and you'll see the sun at its brightest point. But here's what happens. He says, a light from heaven flashed around him. And this light was far brighter than the sun because it was Christ in his glory. And notice what he says. Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting the church? He didn't say that. He says, why are you persecuting me. And the reason why is this, because you and I are the body of Christ. First Corinthians 12, we are the body of Christ. And so anytime anyone opposes us, persecutes us, slanders us, mocks us, they're indeed actually doing it to Jesus Christ. And so Saul is thinking, I'm going out trying to persecute these people of the way, these Christians. But Jesus says, you know what? You're really persecuting me. Verse five, and he said, who are you, Lord? And here's the thing. Some tr uh, translations have that word Lord in the lower case. And they're basically saying it's a term of respect. It's like saying, yes, sir. Uh, what is it, sir? I really believe that because of his rabbinic tradition and what he knows, he really believes that this is God speaking to him. So I think this is really him saying, yes, Lord. Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now underline this, but get up. Underline that word, get up and enter the city, and it will be told to you what you must do. That word get up occurs eight times in Acts chapter 9. I'll show you the significance here in a second. He says, but get up and enter the city, and it will be shown, told to you what you must do. 
Verse 7, the men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. But Saul got up. It's a different word than the one we're looking at, but it's, it literally means to wake up from the ground. And those eyes were open. He could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. And for three days, he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. So he's on the way to Damascus, Damascus Road, 135 miles north of Jerusalem. He sees a bright light and Jesus Christ says, why are you persecuting me? He's told what he must do. And then uh, he enters the city. But at this point now, he is blind. He also is not eating or drinking. The reason why he's not eating or drinking, I believe, is this, is because he's fasting. He's saying now doing the will of Jesus Christ is more important than food or drink. This spiritual need I have to do his will is greater than my physical need. And I'm going to remind you all, we're coming up on January. I think it's going to be 3rd through the 5th. We as a church are going to fast for that first full week in January. And for those of you who did it last year from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m., this year I'm going to ask that you would do it for the whole 24 hours, that you would have just water alone. If that, And also, again, check with your doctor first, because I believe that often our spiritual needs are greater than our physical needs. And the way that we show that is by saying, Lord... I'm going to abstain from food and drink because I want to know you. I want to know your will. So here's what happens in verses one through nine. Point number one, our physical reality can mirror our spiritual reality. At this point, Paul or Saul is fallen and he's blind. He's on the ground and he's blind. And that's why Jesus Christ says, now get up. He's fallen and he's blind. It's a picture of his spiritual reality. He's saying basically, Saul, you think you've been seeing, you think you've been walking, you think you've been living, but in reality, here's the true spirituality seen in your physical reality. You are fallen and you're blind. You're fallen and you're blind. But here's the good news. It's time now to get up. It's time now to get up. By faith, get up. And if you know, in uh, Acts, it keeps on saying, what must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Belief, belief, belief. But here in Acts 9, we never see belief in Saul or Paul. We never see him say, I believe that Jesus Christ died for me. The word believe is not in there, but we see the outcome of genuine belief. And one of those things is, what we're going to mention later, is to get up. So often our physical reality can match our spiritual reality. And that's what happens here with Saul or who eventually we call Paul. He has fallen and he is blind. And so Jesus says, now get up. I see our student ministry volunteers and staff over here to my right. They had the D-Now weekend a couple of weeks ago. And I asked them, hey, how was it? What happened? And they said, you know, do you remember a time, like, quick question in, in here. How did you all learn to worship? Like when you come to worship collectively as a church, how did you learn to worship? And I'm guessing it was by going to breakaway or going to church with your mom and dad or your grandma or grandpa or your uncle and watching them worship. And then you say, okay, that's what I need to do to worship. And so what the D now weekend did was, you know what? I don't think anyone's ever taught us how to worship. So let's teach students how to worship, like the postures of worship so that their spiritual reality, what's going on in their hearts spiritually can be seen physically. So like if you are here today and you're sitting here saying, you know what, I've tried to do life on my own. I've tried to do it my way, and today I'm ready to surrender. What's the universal, universal posture for surrender? Hands up. 
Hands up. So they taught the youth, hey, if you're in coming today, and we're not trying to force anybody in how to worship, any of that stuff, but if you're saying, hey, Lord, I want to have this posture of surrender. Spiritually, I'm surrendering to you. You can simply just raise your hands. I'm not saying I'm giving you the freedom, not telling you what to do, so please don't take it that way. So they taught the youth, hey, I'm going to raise my hands and surrender. Maybe there's a time that you are just saying, I'm going to now worship you in submission. I'm going to lower myself. I'm going to humble myself. And so then you would worship in a prostrate position. You lay on the ground or go on your knees. I've got some verses here. Psalm 134 verse 2 says that we lift our hands and worship. Deuteronomy 9 talks about them being prostrate before the Lord. First Chronicles uh, 23 talks about what we just did earlier when we were worshiping. We were standing out of a respect or reverence for God. And then Daniel 6, we see Daniel kneeling before God. And it's our heart posture. So very often what can happen is this. Our physical reality can mirror and match our spiritual reality. And that's what happens here with Paul. He is fallen and he's blind. And God is saying to him, you thought you were living. You thought you were walking. You thought you could see. But this is your reality. But here's the good news. Look at verse 10. Now there was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. Not the same one as Ananias and Sapphira. So Ananias was a very common name in those biblical days, just like the name Icky is today. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. And notice again, it's a submission. He's saying, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, get up and go to the street called Straight, which is a road that still exists in Damascus, runs east to west, and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. Verse 13, but Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many people about this man, how much harm he did to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. So imagine you're Ananias. And he's most likely one of the leaders in the church there in Damascus. And Jesus comes and says to you, I want you to go and minister to reach out to this man named Saul. All that you know about Saul is he's a murderer and killer of Christians. He's a persecutor. He's killed Christians. And now he's on his way to Damascus with all the legal rights to now kill and persecute more Christians. And Jesus Christ says, now go do it. And again, in verse, in verse uh, 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 10, he says, here I am, Lord, uh, of saying, I'm, I'm submitting to you. What is it, Lord? What's your bidding, my master, is what he's saying. He's saying, this is what I want you to do. And he questions him. Because I don't know about you, but I would probably do the same as well. Because here's someone who's known to be a persecutor and murderer of believers. Verse 15. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to hear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. So he is a chosen instrument. That's who he be. What is he going to do? He's going to bear witness. Acts 1.8, verse 16. For I will show him how much he must suffer in behalf of my name. I'm going to say this to you all. If you want the Lord to use you, if you're saying, yes, Lord, I submit to you. you use me, Lord, to make a difference in this world, in people's lives. You will also have to endure suffering on behalf of his name. So verse 17. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and after laying his hands on him, and this, this thing about laying hands on him. He wasn't laying hands on him like this. 
He wasn't laying hands like we lay hands on praying on people. The laying on of hands here is an affection. It's an affectionate embrace. It's saying, hey, brother Saul. He says, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Again, not indwelt, but filled, controlled or submitted to the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like fist scales from his eyes, uh, fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. And he, you can underline this again, he got up. He got up. I forgot to mention, look at verse 11. The Lord said to him, to Ananias, get up. It's that same word, get up. So underline, and the Lord said to him, get up. Verse 11. And then also in verse 18 there, and he got up and was baptized and he took food and was strengthened. Here's point number two. We're going to elaborate a little bit more on this. Is life, receiving life leads to the Lordship. Receiving life leads to Lordship. Ananias says, yes, Lord. What is it, Lord? And he submits to him. Paul gets up as well. So here's the keys. The keys. Never does it mention that Saul believed here in this passage. But here's the outcome. Four things, four things. Number one is this, repentance, repent. Paul was dead set on persecuting believers because he believed he was doing the right thing. But he repented. He changed his mind. He changed his mind and said, now I'm going to submit to Jesus Christ. I'm going to follow him. Ananias said the same thing. But Lord, this Saul, he's the one that's killed Christians. He's persecuted Christians. He's coming now to hunt Christians. For, this, for him, this is a game. This is sport. And then God says, but this is what I've chosen him to do. And what does Ananias do? He repents. He changes his mind. So much so that when he sees Saul, he lays a hand of embrace on him and calls him a term of endearment. He calls him Brother Saul. Repentance. The second thing is submission. Submission. It's one thing to change your mind. And now you say, yes, Lord, I will now submit to you. I'll do what you want me to do. Even though I may be afraid of Saul and all the stuff I've heard about him, I will now submit even that to you. I'll submit everything to you. Submission. And then notice Paul was led by the hand. He was led by the hand. And then he fasted. What is that picture of? Dependence. Dependence. Saul is now saying, I'm going to depend on you. I realize I'm a dependent on you for everything I have and enjoy. So again, it's repentance, submission, and it's this dependence on the Lord. And that's why we see the filling of the Spirit here at the very end. The Spirit is now empowering me. I'm depending on the Holy Spirit. And the last factor is this communion, intimacy with the Lord. What has Saul been doing? It says he has been praying. He's fasting and praying because he desires intimacy. And we see Ananias has such an intimate relationship that he clearly is speaking with the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's communion with the Lord. And we see this radical change that perhaps before Ananias was afraid of Saul, afraid of being arrested and taken back to Jerusalem. He feared him. He hid himself from him. And now he lays a hand on him and he calls him brother Saul. And this is what the gospel does. The gospel changes relationships. The gospel affects relationships. Enemies become friends. Persecutors and murderers become brothers in Christ. 
The descendants of former slaveholders become friends with the descendants of slaves. The gospel changes relationships. I had a front row seat for this recently. Uh, Dave Keel, who many of you know, he's on staff here at Bay City Fellowship. Uh, he told me a story. He was here worshiping last Sunday. I was kind of insulted by him too because he was here. Joel was preaching and uh, I don't know if Joel's in here. I don't see Joel. Joel did a great job. So Dave said this to me. He said, you better start getting your resume out. And I said, why? He says, because Joel might take your job. I'm like, Joel's good. Yeah, he's, he's, he's amazing. Bless God for him, for sure. He's joking. But this is what Dave told me this week. He said, Icky, I got a story to tell you that crosses racial lines. It talks about the, the family of God, the brotherhood and sisterhood in God. He said, I was uh, taking my son trick-or-treating. He's got a little son, took him trick-or-treating. By the end, he was tired out. I think his son is like two or three years old, Brooks. He was tired out. So he said, we came home. And so here I have Brooks in my arm. He's tired from a long night of trick-or-treating. And all of a sudden, ding-dong, we get that person who rings a doorbell like late at night when you're already ready to shut it down. And he opens the door in his group of eight teenagers. And so Dave is white and he lives in Tomball. And he said, this group of eight teenagers from his neighborhood come to his door. The girl in the very front, African-American, black female teenager, says, trick or treat, whatever. And so he gets his bag of candy out and puts it in front of them. She reaches in to grab some candy and then looks up as she does and then puts the candy back and says, hey, you work at Bice City Fellowship. And Dave's like, uh, I do. How do you know? And she said, you work with my dad. At the 10th anniversary, my dad is Roderick. He was in the media department. You work with my dad. And remember, like my dad, I think, told you that we live in your neighborhood. And you know where the big white Ford expedition is? And Dave's like, yeah, that's our house. And so then this is what Dave said. Instead of grabbing candy out of his bag, she reaches into her bag and pulls out a handful of candy and gives it to Brooks, Dave's son, and says, here you go. And this is what happened. He said the other seven teenagers behind waiting to grab candy are like, what's going on here? Like, do you know this man? What's going on? Why would you give your candy to this boy? And Dave said it was a great picture of the family of God, of now people from different backgrounds, different ethnicities now saying, we are family in Christ. And Dave said this to me, now that I know where they live, I'm planning to go over there and say, hey, let's grab dinner together. Let's get to know each other. Even though we may worship at different churches, we're in the family of God. And that's what the gospel does. The gospel changes relationships. And so here was Saul that came to persecute the church, who's now a brother in Christ to Ananias. Verse 19, and he took food and was strengthened. So he finally ended his fast. Now for several days, he was with the disciples who were in Damascus. And immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue saying, he is the son of God. All those hearing him continue to be amazed and were saying, is this not the one who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on his name and had come for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? But Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that this Jesus is the Christ. Now here's the thing uh, that I want to mention in verse 23. When many days, that word many can be translated sufficient. And this is why. Acts 9, actually the entire book of Acts, is a synopsis. It's a summary. It's not a detailed, line-by-line, historical, like totally like years and days account. The reason why I say that is, because, is this, because in Galatians 1.18, Paul says, when he was Damascus, 
He sees the light. He comes to Jesus. He now preaches to Jesus. He says he remained there for three years and he went into the Arabian desert and not Saudi Arabia as we think of it, but just the area east of Damascus for three years. So this is what happens. It was during that time that Saul had what I call a season of preparation. He began preaching and proclaiming. We were on the three missionary journeys. We all read about those things, but there was also a season of preparation for him as well. I call it, he went to Arabian Theological Seminary where he communed with God. He took out the Old Testament scriptures and began saying, ah, this was Jesus. Oh, this was Jesus. Oh, how did I miss it? This was talking about Jesus Christ. And so between verses 20 and 23, there's a, a period of about three years that goes on. Matter of fact, after this, we see a period of what we call the six years, the silent years of Paul. We don't know exactly what he was doing in Acts, but it also was a season perhaps of preparation as he began to go on these missionary journeys. Verse 23 again, when many days had elapsed, the Jews plotted together to do away with him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were, so, uh, they were also closely watching the gates day and night so that they might put him to death. Damascus, like many cities those days, had a wall around it. So if you want to find somebody coming in and out of the city, all you had to do is watch the, 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 the gate. If you watch the gate, you know who's coming in and who's leaving. And they had people there waiting and watching, looking for Saul because they were now going to put him to death. The one that came to put other believers to death was now on their hit list to be put to death. What a change that happened. Verse 25, but his disciples. And I know some translations say, but the disciples. So many believe this, that the men that he came with, the guards and his guys that he came with to Damascus to arrest and persecute the believers, some of them, based on his testimony, had come to faith in Jesus Christ. So some of his disciples, or perhaps the other disciples, took him at night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a large basket. So they caught wind of this attempt saying, we're going to watch the gates. And so they say, hey, we're going to lower you in a basket so you can escape. So again, the shift, the transformation, some of the very people that Saul came to kill are now saving his life. That's transformation. Some of the men and the women who are now, he came to kill, persecute, take back to Jerusalem and in prison are now saying, we hear wind, we've gotten wind that people are now trying to kill you and they save his life. I was on the phone with my friend Carol Vance. He's a former district attorney for Harris County. And I used to love uh, worshiping with Carol Vance. He was an elder at the church I used to pastor. Carol would sit there. And here was the thing that was amazing. Carol Vance was a district attorney. He sent many men and women to prison for crimes they committed. But then this is what he did. He began a prison ministry, prison fellowship. And it was so impactful that they named part of the Jester prison after him. So if you go to Jester today, you have Jester 1, 2, and 3, and the Carol Vance unit. Because God used this man that once sent so many to prison now to change the lives of these inmates. And this is what I love seeing. On many Sundays, he would be worshiping, raising his hands with his wife, and seated next to him were formerly incarcerated men and women, some that he had even put in jail. That's transformation, and that's what goes on here, that these men and women that perhaps he came to kill are now saying, we are going to save your life. The gospel transforms us. Verse 26, when he came to Jerusalem, so this is after three years, he tried repeatedly to associate with the disciples and yet they were all afraid of him as they did not believe that he was a disciple. 
But Barnabas took hold of him and brought him to the apostles and described to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had talked to him and how he'd spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus at Damascus. And he was with them moving about freely in Jerusalem, speaking out boldly in the name of the Lord. And he was uh, talking and arguing with the Hellenistic Jews, but they were attempting to put him to death. Now, when the brothers heard of it, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him away to Tarsus. So notice this in verse 31, the change now. So the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed peace as it was being built up, as it continued in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it kept increasing. There's that word plethora again. It kept growing. So this is what we find again. Receiving life leads to lordship. We see repentance, submission, dependence, and communion in the life of Saul, who would become Paul, and also in the life of Ananias. Last point here, we'll wrap up. Verse 32. Now we shift to the ministry of Peter. Now as Peter was traveling through all those regions, he also came to the saints who lived in Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas who had been bedridden for eight years. That's a Greek name. We don't know if he was a Greek Jew or a Greek. He was bedridden for eight years because he was paralyzed. Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Underline this, this is the fourth time it occurs. Get up and make your own bed. Immediately, fifth time, he got up and all who lived at Lydda and Sharon saw him and they turned to the Lord. Now notice who healed him. It was Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ healed him. And out of a belief, out of a trust, what does Peter say? He says, because if you believe that Jesus Christ has healed you, now get up, stand up. Because Jesus Christ has healed you, now get up. And what does uh, Aeneas do? He got up. He got up. So here's point number three. Our physical reality can mirror our spiritual reality. It's the same as point number one. It's a picture again, this man, Aeneas, who was crippled. He could not walk. He's paralyzed. And what God is showing us is the same thing that he had physically. He also had spiritually. He was spiritually paralyzed. And for many of us in this room, we are living paralyzed lives as well. Maybe not physically paralyzed, but maybe our lives, our spiritual lives are paralyzed. We're walking with a limp. We're barely making it. Perhaps our marriages are paralyzed. Our parenting is paralyzed. Our career is paralyzed. And you're walking as a paralyzed person. Again, not literally. And what God is saying to you is, if you want to be transformed, you have to get up. If you want to be changed, if you want God to use you, you have to get up. It may mean getting up and going to Christian counseling. It may mean getting up and going to Christian recovery. It may mean getting up and going to see a community group. Whatever it means, however God is speaking to you, if you want to leave that and be changed, you have to get up. Again, look at verse 36. Now in Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. Strange name, but who am I to say anything, right? The word, the name Tabitha or Dorcas means female gazelle. She must have been a really fast runner, I'm guessing. This woman was excelling in acts of kindness and charity, which she did habitually, but it happened. At the time that she became sick and died, and when they had washed her body, they laid it in an upstairs room. Since Lida was near Joppa, the disciples, having heard that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, do not delay to come to us. Verse 39, so Peter, underline this, Peter got up, he got ready, it's the same word. So he heard what happened to Dorcas, to Tabitha. 
And he got up and went with them. And when he arrived, they brought him to the room upstairs and all the windows stood, uh, widows stood beside him, weeping and showing all the tunics and garments that Dorcas used to make while she was with them. So she cared for the widows. Verse 40, but Peter sent them all out and knelt down and prayed and turning to the bodies, he said, Tabitha, what's that word? Get up, arise. And she opened her eyes and when she saw Peter, she sat up and he gave her his hand and raised her up. It's that word again, underline that. She raised her up. He, she got up and calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. It became known all over Joppa. Many believe in the Lord. And Peter stayed in Joppa many days with a tanner named Simon. So here was a woman who was born again. She was a believer. She was spiritually alive. And the picture is this, that just like she's been resurrected spiritually, now God resurrects her physically as, again, a picture, a mirror of her life. And so whatever in your life today is dead, maybe not literally, but in a sense spiritually, if your marriage is dead, your walk was dead, again, the admonition, the call here, like Peter says, is to get up. If you believe that God can revive you, if you believe that God can get you back on your feet again, you have to get up. And he ends in verse 43 with this, and Peter stayed in Joppa many days with a tanner named Simon. We begin to see this gospel transformation because Peter was an Orthodox Jew and he would never go into the home of a tanner because a tanner was an unclean profession. And by this point, we begin to see the change in his heart where he's now willing to stay in the home of a tanner. And we'll see it even further next Sunday as we look at Acts chapter 10 when Peter visits Cornelius, another Gentile. So again, our physical reality can mirror our spiritual reality. Um, almost two years ago to the day, we celebrated my mom's homegoing. My mom passed away, and I've shared this story before. I'll share it very brief, briefly now. My mom was a Shinto Buddhist all her life, and I would share the gospel with her regularly. And I remember this. Um, she got sick. She called me at work and said, hey, can you come take care of me? I got a little cold. And I said, mom, I can't. But Tara gets off work in about 20, 30 minutes. I'll call Tara, and Tara was able to go. So she got off work, and she cared for my mom. She came back home and said, your mom's got a little cold and I'm going to go back tomorrow after work and just care for her again. So Tara went back the next day. This is a Friday and she visits with her, cares for her. And she said, Icky, I'm going to stay with your mom. Your mom is really, really weak. Uh, she can't even sit up. I've got to kind of lift her up to feed her and give her food and water. So I'm just going to be with her. I said, that's great. Thank you for doing that, honey. I owe you big time. So my wife goes to bed, my mom goes to bed. My mom is so weak, she can't even put the covers on her. So my wife puts the covers on her, she's laying down. A few hours later, my wife wakes up hearing her name being called by my mom, saying, Tara, Tara, Tara. And I would do it with a Japanese accent, but I can't do it well. <laughs> and, so, and so Tara woke up and went in the room and she said, Icky, your mom, who is too weak, too weak, to even pull the covers on herself, too weak to even sit up and get food, was now sitting up straight in bed. She was sitting up. And again, it's a physical picture of a spiritual reality. And she said to Tara, I just had a dream. And Tara said, what'd you dream? And she said, I saw Jesus. What did Jesus say to you? What did he do? And, and my mom said, he told me to let go. And Tara said, are you ready to let go today? And she said, I am. And so Tara shared the gospel with her. She came to faith in Jesus Christ. And so here was a woman who could not get up, who's now sitting up, and her physical reality matched her spiritual reality. 
And here's what happened. Four days later, I'm teaching at a conference, teaching a group of church planters, young pastors, evaluating the sermons and giving them some tips on preaching. I put my phone aside, come to find out the Friendswood Police Department had called me multiple times. They found my mom unresponsive four days later. She had passed peacefully in her sleep. And so she sat up because it was a physical picture. She got up of what Jesus was doing in her heart. And that's what happens here, I believe, with Tabitha and with Aeneas. And so today, if you're here, whether for the first time or the millionth time, perhaps God is calling you to now get up, to repent, to submit, to uh, depend on him, and then to have intimate communion or relationship with him. If you believe, if you trust, because that's the key. I was talking to Ryan Vincent, our student minister, and he said this to me. He was at, please don't get your heart broken, he was at the last World Series game. And he said, we were down by quite a bit, and everyone was just sitting down. But he said, in front of me was this nine or 10-year-old boy. He was standing up, he continued to cheer, and he began to yell at everyone around him saying, get up, get up, get up. Why? Because he believed that the Astros could still do it. And he was basically saying, if you believe the Astros are still in this thing, if you believe that the Astros can come back, you need to get up. That's what he was saying. And you all, you all know the result, what happened. But here is Jesus Christ who himself got up. He rose from the dead and he's calling on us today to saying, if you want to be transformed, if you want to be changed by me, you've got to get up. If you want to be used by me, you have to get up. So if there's one big idea for Acts chapter nine, whether you want to be transformed in the moment like Saul to Paul or over a lifetime of used, just like Ananias was used and just like Peter was used, you have to get up. I'll close with this. On the tombstone of John Newton, on the epitaph for John Newton, it simply says these words, and I pray that something similar be written on our epitaph one day as well. John Newton, clerk, once an infidel and libertine, a servant of slaves in Africa, was by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith he had long labored to destroy. Let's pray.